Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. Hey, did you text Wild Med to 44222 yet so that you can come to Colorado and learn and be part of the University of Colorado Wilderness Medicine course where I teach? Come hang out in the woods for a week, in the classroom for a week get a ton of great information. Again, text WILDMED to 44222. Get out of the classroom, get into the wilderness. This is the Pre-Med Year, session number 337. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the Pre-Med Years. I am so excited that you decided to join us today. I hope this podcast is going to find a lot of new listeners because this specific episode is going to help a lot of you. I know that a lot of you are struggling with your test-taking skills, not necessarily because you aren't smart, but because test anxiety overcomes you and controls you during your exam. The fear, the heart racing, the sweats, everything gets to you. And it seems like once it happens the first time, then you're worried about it happening again. And that's why we're gonna talk to Dr. David Pewter all about test anxiety and how to reduce it. He's a psychiatrist who has a passion for helping students and medical students specifically reduce their test anxiety. I know you're going to learn a ton, so let's jump in. David, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. It's good to be here. When did you first realize that you wanted to go to medical school and become a psychiatrist? Okay, go to medical school. I'll answer that one first. I I was in high school. I went to like this you know, choose your career day, freshman year. And the the doctor that was talking, I think was seriously burned out and dissuaded me of medicine. So for the next four years, I didn't think about it again. But then my senior year of high school, I was like, you know, I think I want to do that and I'm just going to go for it. And, you know, I wasn't like an amazing student, but I just thought, you know what, I'm going to put everything on the line. I'm just going to go 
go, go until I'm not able to do it. Um, so that was when I first decided to go into medicine. So I went into college pretty focused on, I'm going to give this the best shot I possibly can. And then to answer the second question, um, it was, it was a long path to psychiatry. I actually did a year of internal medicine first. Hmm. And, um, I, I decided pretty late to go into psychiatry and, uh, I, I think at the end, what led me to go into psychiatry was just my fascination with the mind and inner workings of, of human behavior and seeing that as such a large component of what we do in medicine is, you know, like it's one thing to be able to prescribe an antidepressant. It's another thing to be able to convince a person that they should change their diet, change their lifestyle. So the psychological part was always such so much more fascinating and interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what slowly swayed me to go into psychiatry. Yeah. And where did the interest come from to talk about and treat students with test anxiety? So when I was um, a psychiatry resident, I started moonlighting in a local university. And by moonlighting, it means, you know, actually making good money, unlike residency. Um, <laughs> and uh, so you basically can augment your income. And so I worked there one half day a week and I, and then I continued that into my attending hood for about five years. And, um, so, you know, a lot of the kids that would come into me to see me, um, would have test anxiety, would have anxiety around test taking, would have ADHD, procrastination issues, um, anxiety, depression. And so it's just one of those things that I became interested in treating and had a lot of satisfaction because you can actually treat it and see the response. And then they take it to test and they do well. Talk about your own journey with test anxiety. So I think the, the big story that comes out is taking the MCAT and I don't come from a family of doctors. No one prepared me for what it would be like. Um, I had a conception of it, but until I showed up or, you know, until I showed up that day, I didn't know what it would be like to take like kind of a life changing exam is what it felt like. So it felt like a very sort of fight or flight, you know, near death experience, almost like if I don't make this, then I'm not going to achieve my goals. And, and because of that, you know, my legs were, you know, moving up and down. I remember like having like this dizzy sort of feeling during the beginning of the test. And it took me a while to like ground myself, but I think I probably scored not as well because of that, because my GPA um, at UC Berkeley was so much higher than my MCAT score was expected to be. Um, and uh, since then, you know, I think overstudying has helped me, but in general, um, Tests, tests are tough. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the signs for a student who's listening to this? What are some of the signs of test anxiety that maybe a student wouldn't know? Maybe they just don't, maybe just think they're, they're a bad test taker. So either, you know, severe anxiety in anticipation or during the exam, um, they do worse than their IQ would estimate. So maybe, you know, they do well in pretty much everything, but the, but the final exam or, they do well in the prep, but then when the actual exam comes, you know, for their anxiety is high, maybe they have palpitations, maybe they feel short of breath, they feel a sense of impending doom, they um, feel uh, derealization or depersonalization, which means that you feel out of body or you feel the world is kind of in a fog. And then from that, you also have this impaired attention. So it's hard to focus. You overlook details of the question. So maybe after you know, you look back at the test and you're like, oh, I totally knew that. Right. And so you have difficulty pulling information out of your brain. 
It's harder to stop every noise going around you from coming into your ears. So you can like hear everything that's going around you and it's distracting you. Um, you, you have increased obsessional thoughts. So sometimes, you know, you get really obsessed about one question and you spend a ton of time, even though you probably should move on. Um, another symptom is poor working memory. So the ability to move pieces of knowledge around in your brain. And, um, so those are some of the symptoms, the, the people that have high anxiety before the actual test may procrastinate, may be disorganized, reduced effort. Um, they have similar things that happen in multiple tests. They may have lower standardized multiple choice questions, sort of test taking skills rather than, you know, essays or whatnot. And they may have failed the MCAT or some standardized test before. Um, and they may have no, you know, evidence of other types of mood issues, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't have like chronic anxiety. They don't have social anxiety. They don't have depression. They don't, you know, binge on alcohol on the weekends and feel anxious when they're coming back off of it. They don't, you know, smoke marijuana. They don't have any secondary gain from failure. Actually, some of the most interesting patients are the patients who fail because they don't want to go into medical school because their parents are pushing them yeah. so hard. I've um, seen that plenty of times. Oh, Nice. I bet it's the parent contacting you, not the student, right? <laughs> Usually, yeah. Uh, they may, you know, so they don't have ADHD, which is um, more of a chronic issue with focus and hyperactivity. And uh, they don't have a learning disorder. So they don't have, you know, dyslexia or some sort of, you know, uh, arithmetic or writing learning disorder. Let's talk about that last one. I, I was, I'm glad you brought that up because that was where I wanted to go next is I've talked to some students who are preparing for the MCAT or they're in their coursework and and they meet with their professor and go over all of the information that's going to be tested and the student knows it. And then they take the test and they bomb the test. And lo and behold, they get tested and they have dyslexia or whatever other learning disabilities out there that they may have. How is a student supposed to differentiate between a test anxiety and a learning disorder? So I remember after I took the MCAT and I got my score and, um, I was talking to one of my mentors who was a research mentor and I told him, you know, Hey, I don't understand it because my GPA is really, really high. This is my GPA, but this was my score. And he, he said to me, you know, maybe you should get psychological testing. And when I heard from that, heard that from him, I had this intense feeling of shame come over yeah. me. Like something is wrong with me. I have deficits. And so I never went in to get psychological testing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tell the story because now looking back at that, you know, like I almost kind of like, I'm like, well, yeah, you should have gotten psychological testing uh, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, you go in nowadays, like let's say you get a referral from a psychiatrist or a, a learning disorder specialist for like this, you know, four to six hours of testing. They can check ADHD, they can check your IQ, they can check for specific learning disorders, working memory and stuff like that. And you get this huge 40-page write-up about all of your strengths and some of your places you might not be as strong. Um, and this is a good place to start. Like if you feel like it's hard to discriminate what's going on, this might be a good place to start. The other thing is, you know, you might go see a psychiatrist who can who has seen like a number of people in similar situations. Um, because I, I say that because not all psychiatrists might see a lot of this type of issue if they don't work with this population a lot. 
Um, but they might be able to help you figure out what's going on as well. Um, but I would say, okay, so specifically, how do you know you have dyslexia or specific learning disorder? It, usually it's, you're really, really smart in math, but reading is really, really hard. So it's like, there's, it's like your IQ is, there's a big step to different functions of your IQ or performance. That's an easy way to kind of judge, oh, this guy might have a reading disorder. He might have a, you know, arithmetic disorder. Um, yeah, I hope that kind of answered the question. I kind of told a story along the way yeah. as well. No, that stories, stories always help. Show, don't tell. Um, so I, I like how you added your own story in there as well, because I think I've gotten that pushback from students where I'm like, you should go get tested. And, and as soon as you hear that as a, as a human being that, oh, there's something wrong with me, you're like, well, if, if I don't get tested, then, there's n- then there must not be anything wrong with me because I don't have a diagnosis. But there are benefits to getting tested and, and having a diagnosis, like potentially increased time on the MCAT so that you can, you can work around your, your deficits. Have you seen anybody... Um, who has been tested, has some sort of learning disability, do well on the MCAT and, and get through medical school and, and do fine through this whole process? Absolutely. I mean, it happens all the time. I think we all, we all have weak points. We all have strong points. And, and I think part of developing a good learning plan for yourself is to understand where your strengths are and meeting those needs. For example, some people, when they're in lecture, they don't take anything in. So when they get to medical school, they may not go to any lectures or they may go to just very rare lectures, um, but they may spend their times in the books. Or there's some, there's some people I've met that only learn through auditory hearing. And so they actually, once they get the psychological testing, they can go through the Braille Institute and get pretty much every textbook on audio. And so they just listen to the material and they look for really good listening material. And I bet some of the people who listen to podcasts are naturally gravitating towards an auditory type of learning. Yeah. yeah that's me. I, I that's, wish, I wish I would have known that about me in medical school because I didn't go to classes. I'm like, Oh, I'll just use the note service and study on my own and everything else. And then, uh, it was just silly. Like I listened to a ton of podcasts and I learned so much and I listened to audiobooks and reading textbooks in medical school would put me to sleep. And yet I can sit and listen to, to audiobooks all day, every day and absorb it all. It's crazy. Yep. I'm the same way. I've, I, one year I went through like a hundred audiobooks and it just like, it's just, it's so much easier than reading for me. Reading is so difficult. So I have to like really, really want to read a book if I read a book or if I really need to want to read an article. It's just, it's just how my brain works. Yeah. So it's interesting that we both gravitated towards podcasting <laughs> with <Yep>. that. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. So it's, it's not impossible for somebody to, to have a diagnosis of a learning disability and still do well because you, you figure out how to overcome whatever those deficits are. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think you can still, one of the big things is you will still be a good doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have all types of disabilities and, and still be a good doctor. Um, I would say that it'll be more difficult if you have, you know, a, your IQ is in the lower range. Um, you'll have to put in more work, but, you know, you should still fight and keep going. And, you know, who knows if you had a poor IQ test because of your test anxiety, you know? Yeah. So it's, so I would say 
um, if you really want it, you should you should go for it. Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk more about test anxiety because I think that's where a large majority of questions come in, either through our Facebook group or just individual emails to me is, is how do I deal with test anxiety? Uh, students who s- otherwise know the material, but when it comes to test day, they can't put pen to paper and get the questions right. Where should they start with trying to overcome this anxiety? You know, I was thinking about this and I think before we get on to like the actual treatment, we should talk about like what you, what things should be ruled out. Like as a psychiatrist, when I see a patient who comes in, what, what do I think of first, you know? And I think, okay, one, does this person have like a a primary mood disorder? Like, are they struggling with depression? You know, does every day, do they have low interest, difficulty motivating themselves, lots of guilt, lots of self-hatred, maybe passive suicidality, you know, wishing they weren't alive, you know, is, is there panic disorder? So do they have random panic attacks during the day? Do they have, um, you know, generalized anxiety disorder? So they're just anxious all the time, tension, uh, you know, muscles tight, uh, difficulty controlling their worry in most situations in life. Are they OCD? So for someone who's OCD, they may have obsessive thoughts that don't, that start when you wake up in the morning and don't end until you go to bed at night. The obsessive thoughts get in the way of time studying, get in the way of life. So they may spend like two or three hours a day thinking about washing their hands or cleaning themselves or rituals. Um, they may be on substances. So I would say if, you know, if you're on marijuana, you're on uh, alcohol, get off those things because those things can influence your, your anxiety. Uh, marijuana can increase your anxiety long-term um, and alcohol as well. And you know, do you have any medical issues that are underlying that are not controlled? You know, like, do you have hyperthyroidism? Do you have hypothyroidism? Do you have, you know, um, asthma attacks? Do you have seizures? You know, so what, what are the medical issues that are not controlled that are affecting your ability to focus, concentrate? And on top of that, I would say, what are you on medications that decrease your cognitive function? So there's certain medications like Topamax, which are given for migraines, which will decrease your ability to find words They'll make, you know, they, sometimes it's nicknamed Dopamax, you know, or there's medications like Benadryl, which can cloud your thinking. Um, so are you on any medications that potentially are making it more difficult for you to focus and concentrate? So if, if you've, if you've gone through that list and, you know, you don't, none of those things resonate for you, uh, they get ruled out by a doctor, they get ruled out by a psychiatrist and you only have test anxiety. Then the question is, okay, what is the treatment? Yeah, what is the treatment? <laughs> yeah, so the first thing I would I ask is like, are they exercising? Um, if they're not exercising, I try to get them on an exercise routine just to bring down their physiological sort of system. Um, if they're drinking copious caffeine, I'll get them off that or tobacco or alcohol or marijuana. Um, the next thing I try to do is do some behavioral treatments. So progressive muscle relaxation, uh, systematic desensitization, and behavioral rehearsal are the three big behavioral things that you can do. So, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can look up progressive muscle relaxation and there's a bunch of videos of people showing you how to progressively, you know, take, go through a big muscle groups and kind of contract them and then release it. And then you learn how to sort of bring, bring your body into a more relaxed state 
Um, another way I teach this is have people go to yoga and work with a good yoga instructor on how to do slow, mindful breathing to calm their body systems down. Mm-hmm. So once they figure out how to do that, then you can um, have them do something called behavioral rehearsal, which is they basically try to recreate every every situation possible on what it's going to look like test day. So if you're going to your test day and it's going to be on a Friday and you're going to drive the same way to the test day that you're going to drive on test day, you're going to eat the same food in the morning, you know, a good healthy food. I try to get some, get some, uh, get some avocado, get some oatmeal, get some of that slow burning fuel in your system, not just like really fast burning fuel. Um, like donuts or something where you'll, <laughs> but they you taste know, so good. Well, save it till <laughs> after the test. <laughs> um, so, you know, create a pattern for how you're going to start your day on the actual test day, do it and rehearse it and then go and take a trial exam, sit in the same room, um, pretend that you're taking the real test. And then when you get overly stimulated, practice this muscle relaxation, the calm breathing, you know, and, and you sort of rehearse that. And slowly, if you do this enough, it can extinguish the level of fear that you'll feel on the day of the exam. A lot of it sounds like just mindfulness, being aware of your body and being in control of your body. How much meditation and, and kind of apps like Headspace do you, quote unquote, prescribe to people? Yeah, you know, um, I don't I don't prescribe apps in particular, but I've heard they've been useful by some of my patients. Um, I'll do walking mindfulness with some patients where I'll I'll have them walk with me and we'll walk slowly and feel our feet on the bottom of the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do some chocolate mindfulness if I have chocolate in my office, <laughs> where we'll sit and we'll just eat the chocolate and we'll sit there for like a minute or two, chewing on the chocolate, not swallowing, tasting all the flavors. Um the walking mindfulness I really like because that's what worked for me. I don't know. Sitting and breathing was not helpful. I mean, it's not something that comes naturally to me and maybe I need to do that, but I, that's not how I learned how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did do heart math for a while. I don't know if you've heard of that, but mm-hmm. you can get this like thing that goes on your ear and it gives you biofeedback and it teaches you how to breathe slowly. That was a little bit more scientific for me and helpful, but then I really transitioned to walking fi- mindfulness and it's, you know, it's, They've been doing it for millennia in, you know, if you go to a Buddhist monastery, one of the early things they have you do is eat slowly and walk slowly. And you just repeat, eat slowly, walk slowly, breathe slowly. And, you know, what are you actually doing? Well, you're increasing the parts of your brain, you know, what wires together, fires together. And so you're strengthening the part of your brain that is in connection with your body and not like dissociative anxiety, right? Yeah. So when I talk about derealization and depersonalization in an exam, that sort of feeling of floating away from your body, like coming back to your body, feeling your seat on the ground or feeling your butt on your seat, um, feeling your feet planted to the ground, even walking around if you need to, feeling your feet on the ground. Um, those things kind of pull you out of that state of dissociation and can keep you in a state that is lower anxiety so you can perform but not freak out. It's it's interesting. It reminds me of of Steve Jobs and the story of, of Steve Jobs who had a lot of Buddhist traditions that he would follow. And he would very famously go on walking meetings. He had very serious meetings with people and he would just walk around the buildings and be shoeless a lot of the times and barefoot. And so 
it's it's interesting that it got all kinds of ties together. But it's it's hard for a student. And if I were th- listening to this, going, well, it's all well and good to be able to walk around and and be mindful. But I have to sit for eight hours on test day for the MCATs. How would you recommend a student deal with potentially anxiety that that crops up during the test day? Yeah, so I think that's where learning the breathing or learning, you know, feeling your body in the position it is, feeling your feet on the ground. You can move your feet. You can squeeze your toes. You can um, come back to your sort of bodily sensations. And then also practicing things like, okay, um, this question is really hard. I'm going to skip it and move ahead and then come back to it at five time. So there's different like strategies you can take. Like if you have anxiety in the moment, you know, um, yeah, do you, how about yourself? Do you give any other advice or any other things pop in your mind that's been helpful to your, oh, to your people in the past? Not really. I don't talk about it a lot because I don't know a lot of what to say and it, it's hard for me. And the, the answer I typically give to students is, is I've never dealt with it. So it's hard for me to give advice. Um, I mean, I can give the the general advice of, oh, just get over it. Right. But I know that that doesn't help. Um, and so I, I've, I've tried to get into a lot of mindfulness stuff and it just never sticks for me. Um, yeah. but, uh, I, I know, and, and I'll give you a, a good example. Like the other night we, I have an eight month old and he's, uh, been sick with a cold. And so sleeping has been terrible. And the other night I tried to get him to sleep and and he was just super upset. And so all I did was I cradled him close to my body and I just started taking really deep breaths. And, and within about 30 seconds, he was asleep because he just, he got in sync with me and it mm-hmm. calmed him down. And so uh, I think, I mean, my advice from now on will always be come back and listen to this podcast, but but mindfulness yeah. and, and breathing and, and all that stuff is, is so important. So you were doing more than just mindfulness. Let me explain what happened there because that is really the foundation of good psychotherapy as well. Um, when, when you regulate your body and you calm your own body, um, you know, there's a bi-directional thing. So you will feel some of his anxiety. And I think that's why parenting can be so hard because we can feel the chaotic dissociative energy of the kids, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, or the anger, and it's like it's very raw emotions, especially in like a an infant like that. Um, and and then you, but what you're doing is you're mindfully breathing, calming your own body, right? And then you look at the the child, and the child takes in that, okay, and calms down. And that's a beautiful picture of of what I try to do when I have a a patient in my office, and they're super anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the bi-directionality of that encounter is really powerful. Yeah. It's really powerful. How do you deal with negative self-talk? Because I think you, you talked about working memory earlier and, and maybe you can explain working memory the, the way that I kind of explain it. Cause I have a, a neuropsychologist for a father-in-law. And so he's explained it to me like computer Ram almost, right? You only have a certain amount of space for information and that's your working memory and it kind of gets shuffled around as you need it. And students oftentimes get into a lot of negative self-talk and that will take up some of that working memory and they don't have room to, to draw out the information that they need to know to answer questions. So as a student is, is working through a test or studying or whatever they're doing, 
and they're sitting there going, oh, I'm so stupid. I don't know this. How can I not know this? Why didn't I learn? Why didn't I study this, et cetera, et cetera? How do you break that cycle? Yeah. So I'll give you my, um, my handout I created for this, um, for my own podcast, the Psychiatry and Psychotherapy Podcast. And we talk about um, the cognitive distortions. And it's really a type of therapy called cognitive therapy. Um, and it's, it's one type of therapy that can be useful for the, the sort of negative thoughts that we might have. And so in the therapy, we, we, lear- we learn to put our own thoughts on trial and judge the accuracy of the thoughts. For example, one cognitive distortion is like overgeneralization. So we take one bad experience and we extend it to all the experiences that we've had or all the experiences that will happen in the future. So a girl, you know, told me that I'm stupid. So therefore all girls will think I'm stupid or I failed this test. Therefore I will fail all tests. Right. And so that's a cognitive distortion and we know that's not true. Right. And so we're just trying to move into a more truthful state. We're not trying to trick ourselves. We're just trying to move into a more truthful state. Another one is black and white thinking. So if I did not, you know, study 40 hours a week, then I will not pass this test, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that, where it's like, we go all bad and all, all black and all white on things, you know? And, um, other ones are like emotional reasoning, you know, I feel stupid, therefore I am, you know, and, um, it's interesting, even with medical students, I work with a lot of third years and I say, raise your hand if you feel stupid and they all raise (laughs) their hand. Um, and it's just the system that we live in, you know, because there's, there's a barrage of, of questioning that happens in medical school, which is really tough. And so you kind of get left with this feeling like, I don't really know anything. But really, you're being asked these questions by super subspecialists who have spent another 10 years learning their specialty, you know, and and, and so they're, they're cherry picking the questions that they know. And so they want they want to look smart, too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And once you realize that your goal is to make other people not look stupid, you'll do a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, I mean, like, you, there's just no way that you can know everything, you know? And so you have to kind of get used to the fact that you're, you can't be perfect. You, you can only work hard and continue to try to learn, but you won't know everything. There's no way. So yeah, we do. So cognitive therapy, I'll give you that handout so you can put that up on your website if yeah. you want. Um, it's like an eight day journal that I made up that takes people progressively through it. So you can under, so they can kind of get it into their brain, but it's really just, it really comes down to practice. And, you know, people spend hundreds of hours, hundreds of hours um, learning stuff for, you know, the MCAT or whatnot. I would say spend 50 hours just on yourself, like learning some of this emotional stuff, um, getting to a place where you feel like you can contact the or counteract these negative thoughts that come into your brain. And it really is a discipline of practice to, to be good at doing this. As we wrap up here, what haven't we talked about, about test anxiety that you think students need to know and understand to hopefully overcome it? Um, I, I, think the, I think the big thing I want to reemphasize is, um, well, let, there's one other thing that I think is important, is that sometimes medications can help. So sometimes there's been a couple cases that I've treated people and I'll give them propanolol. It's a beta, it's a beta blocker. Yeah. It's, um, it decreases the sympathetic nervous system outflow, the effect of epinephrine on the body. And, um, it really decreases the physiologic sort of experience of stress. Yeah. 
Um, and it could be powerful. And what I say to people is start with 10 milligrams propanolol, try it on the weekend when they're studying or something, just to see if there's any side effects. You know, some people will get a little lightheaded. Some people will feel really, really tired, but rarely, right? It has no cognitive doling effects that I can find. Um, and so try it on a weekend, see how it works. And then try it another time when you're taking a trial test, see if it decreases your anxiety and then take it during the test, the same dose that you've tried, you know? Yeah. So 10 or 20 milligrams of that. Um, a lot of students talk about using that for speeches as well, for public speaking. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've had a couple students who take it three times a day during third year and then they get off of it because third year, the performance anxiety, the anxiety of being, you know, talking on rounds, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the other class of medications to be aware of is like the antidepressants, like SSRIs. Um, those can be helpful in some situations, decrease overall anxiety. You have to be on them for six weeks for the anxiety to come down. So it's not something I would start a week before the MCAT because it's not going to help you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, David, you have a ton of great information and you have a podcast. Talk about your podcast for a second and why students should go check it out if they're interested in psychiatry. So about a year ago, I started the Psychiatry and Psychotherapy pod podcast. Um, it, it has about 30,000 people who are, um, subscribed to it and mostly mental health professionals or people going into mental health. Um, I have a lot of third year medical students who listen to it when they're on their, their first psychiatry experience to kind of, you know, jumpstart their, their information on that. Um, it goes through different topics in psychiatry. And I'm either interviewing an expert or I'm talking to myself. Um, probably the series that I get most excited about is I go through a series on microexpression and how to read people's facial expressions and then how to um, use that information. And microexpression is like, it's like blips of emotion that flash on people's faces. And there's anger, disgust, fear, sadness. And most of the time, like if I was taking an average person off a the street, they would score 50% right, 50% wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I actually made an app for the iOS called Emotion Connection where you can learn how to read it. And then if you listen to the podcast series, I have a three-part series on that. Um, you'll know how to use it. And it's something that I've used in psychotherapy that's kind of uniquely my creation um, that I get excited about. I also get excited about empathy, therapeutic alliance, how to connect with patients or yeah, how to connect with patients. Um, cause that really does change outcomes. Um, it changed, it changes compliance if you connect with them. And so I teach a lot of the psychotherapy. I teach a lot of, for the residents, for the medical students, and it's one of my unique passions. And my goal is to help like the next generation of mental health professionals do slightly better at what they do because that'll give me an intense meaning in being able to help that you know, all the people that they take care of subsequently from having a little bit more empathy or a little bit better ability to connect with patients or, you know, a little bit more wisdom on how to practice the field of psychiatry. Wow. That sounds awesome. I, it reminds me of like the FBI kind of interrogators who are reading people's looks and facial expressions, but like, nope, they're lying. <laughs> like they're just human lie detectors. It, it, you know, Paul Ekman came out with that movie, Lie to Me. Mm -hmm. um, I watched that and then I took a couple trainings 
on it. And then I made an app because I was so fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, and the app, you know, for a fraction of, uh, gosh, I, I think I spent a couple hundred dollars learning this. And the app is like, there's a free version called Learn Emotion. There's a paid version that's like $5 with, with about four times the, the amount of emotions on it. Um, but, you know, it's just a, a sort of a side passion of mine to be able to, to help people um, connect better with other people. Because if you see every single emotion that pops on someone's face when they're talking to you, you're going to be able to tell if they're upset at you. You're going to be able to tell if you're saying something that's hitting them the wrong way or, or you're not understanding them. And then once you can get that feedback, you can learn from your experiences. And so much of what we do in medicine is face-to-face -face human interaction. And if you're able to connect with people on a day-to-day -day basis, you will experience so much more gratitude from your patients because your patients will appreciate you. They will appreciate the, the listening that they're experiencing from you. And, and they're just left with gratitude. So I tell, I think it's one of the biggest areas that we can influence and decrease burnout, actually. Yeah. If we just connected better with our colleagues and connected better with our patients, I think we would have less burnout because we would, we would feel the gratitude from each other. And that you know, and the mere neuron sort of experience of feeling someone else's gratitude is actually very pleasurable. Yeah. Well, David, what's your website where people can check out and learn some more? It's just uh, psychiatrypodcast.com. Um, you can find me on social media, David Pewter. At, on Instagram, it's dr.davidpewter. Um, if you just Google psychiatry and podcast, I think I'm the number one podcast that comes up. You'll see David Pewter next to it, psychiatrypodcast.com. And if you put me up in iTunes, um, they favor some of the older ones that have been around, but I'm like usually fourth or fifth or sixth one if you just look up psychiatry and podcast. And um, yeah, so I'd love uh, any of your any of the people who listen to you, if you want to send me a DM on Instagram, um, I'll try to answer your questions. And uh, yeah, I would love, uh, I would love to uh, continue to collaborate with you as well. All right, there you have it. Hopefully you learned a ton today how to control, how to reduce, how to minimize your test anxiety. Hopefully with this knowledge, you will go out and crush your physics, your OCHEM, your MCAT, your board exams, whatever they may be, whatever tests are in your future and whatever tests your test anxiety are controlling at this point. Go back and re-listen practice these skills that Dr. Pewter talked about and improve your test scores one day at a time. And again, don't forget to text WILDMED to 44222 to get a link to the University of Colorado Wilderness Medicine page for pre-meds where you can learn about the courses that they offer here in Colorado, in California, and in Costa Rica throughout the year so that you can get some exposure to medicine in a whole new way. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. 